Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we invite scholars, policymakers, and executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues and our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Uh, so we had Professor Adam Tooze on the show a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, uh, talked about his book, Crash, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. Uh, and today we have a very close friend of uh, him to join us in the studio, uh, Professor Stefan Eich. Uh, of, he is the Perkins Cotson Postdoc Fellow in the Society of Fellows in the Liberal Arts at Princeton University. Uh, he would join Georgetown University as Assistant Professor of Government this August to start uh, next academic year. Uh, his research is in political theory, the history of political thought, uh, in particular the political theory of money and financial capitalism. So it's really fascinating in the intersection uh, of capitalism, credit, uh, money, finance, and also uh, on the other spectrum uh, of political theory, uh, intellectual history. So uh, we really look forward to having this intellect, super uh, fascinating conversation with Professor Ike. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you, Tiger. Thank you for having me. Um, so, so you wrote this, uh, um, I guess, chapter called Introduction to the Political Theory of Money uh, in the book The Currency of Politics, the Political Theory of Money from Aristotle to Keynes. And, and ju just to start us off, uh, why do we need to care about the politicization of, of money? I'm, I'm butchering that word. Uh, so what, 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 what happens when uh, money becomes more or less politicized? Yeah, I should say this is a book that I'm wrapping up right now, and it's under contract with Princeton University Press, and I hope to finish, in the, finish it in the next couple of months. But for me, one of the motivating questions and insights for the book was the way in which to juxtapose the politicization to the depoliticization of money is in many ways misleading. And instead, what I'm trying to do is to speak of the politics of monetary depoliticization. So to emphasize the way in which depoliticization is itself a political strategy, in many ways a supremely political strategy. And so instead of debating politicization of money versus its depoliticization with all the obvious political fault lines, I think instead we should ask repoliticized or depoliticized on the basis of what kind of politics? On the basis of an egalitarian democratic politics or on the basis of a kind of plutocratic politics? So the kind of key politics in there all the way through, even in instances where we might seem to perceive the appearance of money to be depoliticized. Politics has never been evacuated, and talking of the political theory of money makes that visible. Uh, you wrote that money is uh, sort of uh, constitutively political in three senses, and for one, uh, politics is monetary, and people often consider money's connection with politics as a kind of inherently evil thing, like very corrupt, you know, the how when money and politics are intertwined, it's never a good thing. So uh, are there any positive sides or, or negative sides? Do you use those terms to judge the politicization of, of money at all? I mean, one way to flip this around, um, which might be helpful, is to kind of pose the puzzle in the inverse, right? We can, there's a, there's a very standard trope which you allude to, which associates kind of monetary orders with political tempering and the kind of potential breakdown, the fragility, the way in which monetary orders easily give rise to inflation and potentially kind of runaway hyperinflation. But I think if one looks at the history of, of money, like the inverse puzzle arises in some way, not why there are hyperinflations, but why are there so few hyperinflations? Why does money actually most of the time function? 
And one example is our own world since the 1970s, no longer on any kind of metal, gold or silver. And nonetheless, we have not experienced hyperinflation during the 1980s and 90s. So clearly, it's not a it's not a phenomenon that we have to just reconcile ourselves with. But we have found ways to um, you know, have stable money that is not chained to gold. And so the puzzle for me is the inverse. And then what that sh- means is speaking of the kind of politics that we're dealing with there. So rather than already reducing politics to nefarious kind of electioneering and short-termism, I would like to expand what we mean by politics. And from, from my perspective, monetary orders are deeply political First of all, because they are built on and continuously raise fundamental distributional questions. Every monetary order is deeply tied up in distributional questions. Who gets credit and who does not? Who benefits from low or high inflation and who does not? And perhaps most importantly, who has the right to make money and who has the right to delegate this making of money? So this is the first way in which I think politics is is constitutive. But I, I would like to push it even further by thinking of politics here really as a form of self-government. And in that sense, political politics isn't just there because monetary orders raise distributional questions. But I think it turns out that money as a form of, um, as a tool of economic exchange exists for millennia. But something crucially happened in what one might call the axial age, so around the 7th, 6th century BC, when money for the first time acquired a political appearance in the form of currency. And so surprisingly, it turns out that the rise of the ancient Greek polis was actually accompanied by this new monetary intervention and this new form of money as currency issued by the polis. So and that's really what I'm interested in. That's the kind of politics, of monetary politics, as potentially giving rise to a new form of self-government that I'm interested in tracing in the in the project. Uh, let's just quickly expand a little bit more on um, ancient Greek, how, how currency started there and eventually went through a couple of stages. Uh, you, you talked about how f- from Aristotle to, to John Locke, from Marx to Keynes. How did sort of money evolve at those turning, turning points in history? Yeah, I should say I'm, I'm less interested in providing a continuous history of money. There are plenty of those around. Instead, the book uh, manuscript is structured as a set of six crises of kind of monetary politics. And five of those are modern. So it's primarily modern money that I'm interested in. Now, Aristotle and currency is crucial nonetheless because it forms the background to many of the changes in the 17th century, many of the kind of truly um, path-breaking ideas in the second half of the 17th century associated with the emergence of modern money. And Christine de San has um, looked at this in, in particularly eloquent detail in her book, Making Money. But many of them have to do with the rethinking of the conventionality of money. And this this has to be linked back to Aristotle. But Aristotle also brings in a different idea of currency as a political institution that in many ways hasn't disappeared, but is rendered largely invisible in modern money. So I'm both interested in making some of the pivots in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century visible, but also to offer conceptual resources for us today to better understand some of the layers that are still incorporated in our modern concept of money, but might need some additional re-articulation to kind of become visible again. Got you. So that was uh, that was your book forthcoming: the currency of politics, the political theory of money. 
uh, from Aristotle to Keynes. I, I just want to move on to some of your other fascinating writings. Uh, so there's this book called, also forthcoming called Regulating Blockchain, Techno-Social and Legal Challenges. And there's the chapter four, Old Utopians, uh, Old Utopias, tax, New Tax Havens, The Politics of Bitcoin and Historical Perspective. This, this is a chapter uh, of yours that I'm very, very interested in. So you wrote in that, I mean, it's about uh, Bitcoin, blockchain, and also how it ties with uh, history of political theory. Uh, would you mind explaining a little bit sort of the ideas you're exploring there? Uh, and also, what, what, what are some of the interesting findings you have? Yeah, this is this is a book, um, an edited volume that's coming out and uh, hopefully uh, next month or so over the summer with Oxford University Press. And I'm one of the co-editors alongside uh, Philip Hacker, Yanis Lianos and Georgios Dimitropoulos, three lawyers, in fact. So this came out of two conferences, one in Athens and one uh, in London, in which we tried to bring together computer scientists, in particular lawyers, but also um, economists and political theorists in my case, to think through the potential future of money. And so my, my chapter um, focuses on understanding the politics of electronic currencies or cryptocurrencies in ways that kind of questions their status as currencies. And so in the chapter, I, I emphasize that it's crucial not to fall for the idea of cryptocurrencies as this kind of technological breakthrough that is going to remove the politics of money and remove money from the state, and instead to appreciate the way in which the politics of Bitcoin is embedded in two historical contexts. One is the global politics of money after the end of the Bretton Woods system in the 1970s, and many of the questions we're still grappling with. And secondly, the kind of more narrow context of the financial crisis of 2007-2008. And so instead of taking at face value the idea of decentralization and depoliticized private money, I am emphasizing in the chapter the ways in which the employment of the term cryptocurrency is deeply strategic. Because what it allows for is a particularly privileged regulatory regime as money rather than, which I think is more plausible, as a kind of speculative asset. As a speculative asset, capital gains taxes would apply, various forms of laws against market manipulation would kick in. None of this uh, applies, um, it depends on the jurisdiction, but mostly none of this applies in the case of currencies. And so I, I tend to think of um, Bitcoin uh, in this context as a as a form of a political strategy that we can date back to the 1970s of privatizing money, of removing oneself quite intentionally from the democratic uh, distribution of a public good. Uh, so you wrote that cryptocurrency is part of a struggle over political status of money in an age of financialization. Cryptocurrencies are suspended between two contradictory goals, a radical political attempt to depoliticize the appearance of money and seductive use of cryptocurrencies as a speculative asset beyond the regulatory grasp of uh, monetary and fiscal authorities, sort of exactly as you, as you said about the speculative aspect of it. Uh, and, and, but, but, so, but you also mentioned you, you cannot take away the political factor of it. So I want to hear a little bit more about this, this tension here. I mean, will, does it mean that you're a little bit less optimistic about the, the vision that the blockchain innovators are sort of putting forth. Yeah, I think 
it's helpful to distinguish kind of two different levels here. One is the kind of theoretical conceptual point that even a depoliticized form of money, this kind of decentralized vision that Bitcoin offers, is itself obviously a political vision. I mean, if one listens to the kind of proponents of Bitcoins, they have a, they have a, they see the political stakes very vividly. The way in which it's pitched against the state, the way in which it's pitched against banks, and like all the kind of promises that kind of stretch from the libertarian right all the way to kind of the cypherpunk anarchist movement on the left. So clearly politics is not gone. It's just a particular kind of politics that's being pushed here. So that is a kind of first more conceptual observation of how depoliticization actually doesn't mean the removal of politics, but instead it's the kind of suggestion of one politics over another kind of politics. And then the second one is kind of an investigation of okay, what does that kind of politics actually entail, where I'm deeply skeptical on normative grounds about the desirability of removing ourselves from the shared provision of a public good, which I see as a form of free writing that then very easily flips over into this uh, second aspect that you emphasize, namely the use of cryptocurrencies as speculative assets. So this is where I see um, kind of cryptocurrencies as capital in some sense. Now, the larger question w which you asked is, you know, how do I see, um, see this developing in the future? It entirely depends on regulatory agencies, in particular central banks and financial uh, regulatory agencies have all the tools and powers at their disposal to regulate this space. And in fact, the, the book um, is entitled Regulating Blockchain, Techno-Social and Legal Challenges. And I think we're going to see an intensifying debate on the part of regulators of how to regulate this kind of space. And one reason why I think it should be regulated, and I should say I'm... Uh, I'm one of many voices in this book, and people take contrarian positions in other chapters. But one of the things that why it should be regulated is precisely because of this, you know, potentially um, unsavory politics of privatizing money and removing oneself from the democratic realm. So you don't see it as a purely technological change that is sort of... Um I, I guess would it be influenced by political factors that they could just come in using purely using technology to disrupt the the status quo? You don't yeah. see it that way. I mean, for historically, just um, it, it turns out that blockchain technology is fairly old. I mean, it's been around since the late '80s, early '90s. It's not this kind of technological breakthrough that no one had thought of. It was something that was fairly well known about computer scientists, but no one quite realized what one could do with it. So that's the first point. The second point is, it's not a coincidence that. Bitcoin emerges in the wake of the financial crisis. In fact, the Bitcoin Genesis block has a headline from the London Times embedded in it as a kind of timestamp, which um, is something to the effect the chancellor bails out second bank. So it's from the beginning tied to a kind of political frustration with bank bailouts in the course of the financial crisis. So again, it's, it's politics from the very beginning, a particular kind of political vision. And then I think it's it's on us to interrogate the plausibility of that political vision in addition to its desirability. And the plausibility to me seems to run into a number of just kind of empirical constraints. So for example, to pick one, one case, the much emphasized decentralization is obviously true on a technological level when one thinks about what blockchain does and how ledger technology stores information. But if one looks at the kind of 
location of, for example, Bitcoin mining and the kind of economics of Bitcoin mining for very simple economies of scale, some natural, some artificially embedded through the algorithm, it turns out that mining is a highly centralized endeavor. It's, a, it's an oligopolistic market structure with several mining companies providing the vast bulk of mining capacity. And so already then some of the kind of facade and you know idea of decentralization begins to begins to fall off um, and there are other examples when it comes for example to the way in which decisions are made so what happens in the case of a fork it seems that politics either consensus based or non-consensus based enters at these crucial moments so far from somehow removing ourselves from the kind of old questions of trust and centralization and the state and who decides and who doesn't decide, all the kind of questions of politics, it seems they resurface in the case of uh, blockchain technology or Bitcoin more specifically, if one looks a little more closely. What if we remove the financial aspect of blockchain technology? We talk about other applications like you know, fact-checking or, or even you know, sort of this distributive ledger sort of system that if we look at that part, just pure technically, uh, does that remove some of the complicating factors that you talked about? Does that make the application more plausible, to, more realistic to, to go down the road? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. As a technology, blockchain is neutral. It doesn't come with a kind of prepackaged political vision. Even the decentralization can be very easily linked to other forms of centralization or you know, non-financial users. So I don't think it's anything that is necessarily and constitutively linked to blockchain. But I think it is important to realize that many of the users that have attracted attention and that have been hyped are precisely linked to the way in which it's going to radically transform not just financial market, but the way in which kind of societies organize. And that's where my skepticism kicks in again. Yeah, we might be able to use archives more efficiently, but that's not the kind of grand transformation that blockchain technology has been promising us. Got you. Be because uh, I asked that question because some of the scholars have already proposed that liberal democracy simply won't be able to handle a lot of the issues that will come up in in the future. And a lot of scholars are proposing sort of radical, radically new political system um, some even based built sort of built based on decentralization. I mean, some even proposed this uh, ideal of uh, quote unquote decentralized so, uh, socialism. You know, having a, a more distributive system, but you sort of have a a better way of redistribution. Uh, so I, I want to hear your thoughts on that. You, you don't think you know using blockchain technology itself, we could just achieve a single sort of political vision it would be yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical I'm, it's not it's not obvious to me how decentralization on its own will ever be able to address the kind of most pressing issues we're facing today first because some of the political problems of trust and centralized authority turn out to reappear even in decentralized networks where someone ends up owning the network and has to make crucial decisions. I mean, think about social networks. So far from you know, implying the abolition of authority or censorship, it just turns out it's been moved to a different node. So these questions don't go away and decentralization as a result won't, won't you know, remove us from politics and the, the hard work that politics implies. But Secondly, if we just look at you know, these large pressing issues that I think you allude to, you know, instead I think we should you know, turn towards ways to think innovatively about cooperation. 
So complex, dynamic interaction between different, more or less centralized nodes of power. And think of climate change, right? Like what we need is a form of global coordination. Or think of the global monetary system and many of the challenges that Adam Tooze has laid out so, so brilliantly and crashed. What they require is more and more complex forms of international coordination. And I worry that any call for decentralization, just appealing as it, as it may sound, essentially amounts to a redressed call that it's just fine for each and everyone to pursue their narrow self-interest. And then in the end, some kind of quasi-theological force, be it the market or an algorithm, will come in to ensure that the end result is socially superior. I just don't think it will be. Climate change, again, is the obvious, is the obvious case. And just to kind of add one, one footnote that ties climate change back to uh, Bitcoin, and which I think serves as a, as a sobering reminder of how these questions are tied together, Right now, the, the latest estimates are that the entire Bitcoin network uses as much energy every day as a medium-sized European country. It's on track to take over, to use more energy than all solar panels ever installed next year. So this supposed solution of decentralized, non-trust-based interaction is actually right now destroying the planet. And for me, that's, that's exactly the kind of instance that becomes invisible if we buy into a narrative of decentralization uh, as somehow solving the problems for us instead, of, instead of focusing on coordination. Uh, that, that totally makes sense. Awesome. I, I haven't really heard about this sort of uh, political interpretation of blockchain because usually the books we read just all uh, paint a very, very extreme pictures, right? Either very rosy or very dystopian so so it's very refreshing yeah like like any other you know monetary or political institution it has some of dynamics of its own but in the end it's up to us of how we respond to it as as a society how we regulate it so so in that same paper you also talked about uh, uh, economic globalization uh, international integration of uh, sort of financialization uh, uh, that that we're seeing a deteriorate territorialization of money, meaning uh, money is sort of losing boundaries, becoming more globalized. Uh, but we also saw in recent political movement like Brexit, uh, where populist movements sort of have advocated to take back control of not just financial or monetary policy, but also just political decision-making in general. So do you foresee this globalization and deterritorialization of money continue to happen as a, as a trend, inevitable trend, or, or is it more of a cyclical development where uh, we're kind of in the phase of you know retracting back from the global vision right now. Yeah, instead of kind of pitching these two trends against each other, I think it's helpful to see them together, to see them as responses to each other, to appreciate the ways in which economic and financial globalization also breeds political and cultural fragmentation. So I think these these belong together rather than being somehow forces that pull into opposite direction and understanding the precise dynamics of how they interact is one of the is one of the challenges for anyone who thinks about the present historically and politically but in that spirit i think that the deterritorialization of money is increasingly running up against the kind of political paradoxes of its own success so consider exactly the 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 narrative of of crashed and the kind of haunting political conclusions that come out of it when one begins to appreciate the ways in which the role of the Federal Reserve in the wake of the financial crisis has increasingly been to act as a 
global lender of last resort, right? The kind of the political challenges associated with that, both domestically for American politics and the role of the Fed within the kind of constitutional framework in the US, but also the way in which it affects other countries, particularly emerging economies, and the kind of acute sensitivity they have to every word uttered by the Federal Reserve. You know, these are the kind of global political problems that emerge as paradoxes out of the territorialization of money. And in several instances, this will, you know, breed fragmentation and political backlash. But it's important to understand the origins of this without without becoming reductionist. Got you, got you. Uh, and you also talked about how the 2008 financial crisis sort of revealed that money is uh, inherently or inescapably political. Uh, the, 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 but the state has no ability to govern the new sort of monetary regime that we're seeing that, that becomes more globalized. Uh, for example, is the, the idea that Professor Tews also talked about trans transatlantic finance, how European banks have their balance sheets very much tied up in the housing crisis in the U.S. And, you know, a sort of a U.S. recession ended up turning into a, a global financial crisis. So um, I, I want to ask you this question. So does it mean that we've developed the the financial system today to such a complicated extent that nobody is able to fully understand and, and control it. I mean, we're adding layers and layers of new financial uh, regulatory regimes and there are new financial instruments being innovated every day. Uh, is, are we just sort of a hamster running on, on, on a wheel? Um, I, I don't know where we're headed right now. Yeah, I mean, there's this other incredible moment that's also in Adam Tooze's crest when Raghu Rajan, um, I think this is before he was appointed as uh, the, Indian the head of the Indian Central Bank, right. is challenging Larry Summers at Jackson Hole about essentially the, the hidden risk built into innovative financial products. And the way in which Summers responds is precisely by reasserting a faith in technological futurism and technological progress. And he straightforwardly, you know, describes Rajan as a Luddite. Like, I think he's, he says as much as if you if you doubt, you know, the progress made in new financial products, you, you're probably the, the kind of person who also thinks that flying is dangerous. So you, that, in that case, you just shouldn't take an airplane because you just fundamentally don't understand technological progress. And obviously, you know, things things look very differently just briefly afterwards already. And so from from that perspective, we need to ask, you know, as a society, is it is it really such a good idea to send off the best and brightest to develop more and more sophisticated financial products? What is the purpose these products actually fulfill? And to just respond in a respond in a knee-jerk way that it's about liquidity provision is just not enough anymore. Not only because of deep reasons of financial stability, but also because we actually desperately need productivity growth. And it's far from clear what the role of financialization in this has been. And I think none of this is heretical. I mean, you can find exactly the same sentiment in someone like Paul Volcker. Um, and so my plea here would be, would be twofold. On the one hand, to make banking boring again, to ask why we need certain kind of financial products and what purpose they fulfill, and then connected to this, to actually democratize access to credit. Uh, so w would you say that we haven't really made quote-unquote progress uh, in the past couple of decades by making the financial system more complex? Because there are a lot of situations, including, so I interviewed uh, former New York Fed President Bill Dudley, and he was saying, I mean, 
we, we've certainly made a lot of progress in terms of, you know, ag adding better regulatory measures. I mean, even the fact that we came up with macroprudential policy to, to oversee the shadow banking industry. I mean, those are very concrete progress that we make. I mean, the the, the banking sector is, is becoming safer, uh, better regulated. So, no, I I, I wouldn't. Um, I agree with this. I think Dot Frank has made a, a real impact. I was just referring purely to. The financial innovation, the kind of financial products, whereas Dot Frank and the kind of progress post-financial crisis that has been made has to do with the liability side of banks' balance sheets, the way in which capital requirements are managed, the way in which funding is, you know, better understood today. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to downplay the progress on that side, but. What's happening on the other side, on the kind of financial products that are being developed? I think we still didn't have a, a conversation that went to the root of this, that actually takes seriously the kind of concerns that even people like Paul Volcker have been raising for a long time. Got you. Uh, so we've been bringing up Professor Adam Tews a couple of times. Uh, why don't we uh, talk about sort of a paper you worked on with, with the, the great inflation in Vorgeschichte der Gegenwart. I'm so glad that I speak German where I wouldn't be able to read a lot of your words. <laughs> um, so you talked about um, the great moderations in the 60s, 70s, the inflation, uh, and I guess a lot of, sort of American economic history there uh, about, you, you talked about the conflict between liberalism or liberal democracy uh, with capitalism. Do you think those sort of two terms are kind of at odds with each other, that there are two inherently contradictory forces. I want to hear your thoughts on capitalism, liberalism, democracy. Uh, very big questions. But <laughs> yeah, this was, this was a chapter I was very lucky to co-author with Adam Tooth in 2016. And what we tried to do there was to look at the historiography of the great inflation and to kind of just appreciate the ways in which so many conversations that we're having today take us back to the 1970s. It's really the crucial pivot for the world that we inhabit. And one solution that emerged in the 1980s and 90s that for many for a long time looked like it might actually solve the questions of the 1970s was the Great Moderation. And the Great Moderation offered an account of how liberalism and capitalism are not just compatible, but require each other. The way in which a particular kind of monetary policy regime goes together with a particular kind of conception of democracy as delegating and insulated and so on. And, and the Great Moderation was, uh, just to give our listener a very quick overview. I mean, the Great Moderation was an idea that, it's a term that Ben Bernanke coined about the way in which the you know, post 1970s state and particular central banks had found a way to essentially manage growth, employment, and prices in a you know stable fashion. So the idea of you know vast business cycle swings or inflationary bursts like in the 1970s could be safely relegated to the past because now through institutional design, namely independent central banks, monetary policy combined with responsible fiscal policy could actually prevent you know, large cyclical fluctuations. And even if bubbles arose, monetary policy could very effectively intervene and prevent kind of deep recessions. So it was a very rosy picture that you know, obviously emphasized the macroeconomic stability, but I think it was already always tied to a particular kind of political, liberal, institutional design, not least in the form of uh, independent central banks. And as we point out in the, in the chapter, the crisis shatters 
this kind of idea at synthesis. So the great moderation doesn't survive the crisis. Many of the things that were not supposed to have happened happened. The role of central bankers you know, emerged more clearly than it had been appreciated before. Central bank banks acted in you know, ways that were not only discretionary, but also revealed extraordinary powers, or at least the ability to exercise extraordinary powers. So part of the challenge is, is to return now to the fundamental questions, not just economic questions, but political questions of the 1970s that have a much more awkward and uncomfortable conception of how capitalism and liberal democracies coexist. It's, it's not a necessarily pessimistic picture, but it appreciates the kind of hard work, both domestically and internationally, that is necessary in terms of coordination, constitutional design, and just a healthy democratic public that are required in order to kind of keep this nexus healthy. Uh, how do we keep that? So you wouldn't say they're inherently against each other, they can work with each other. How do we make that happen? Well, they're based on, you know, initially fundamentally different principles, namely political equality on the one hand, and um, you know, at least the permission of economic inequalities on the other hand. So there is always a, a challenge from the very beginning. How do you reconcile political equality with economic inequality? And much of the post-financial crisis anxieties from Thomas Piketty to many others has been dwelling on precisely this kind of tension. That doesn't mean that there's a straightforward contradiction that cannot be reconciled, but one needs to go back to basics and appreciate the tension that is there from the beginning and find ways to manage that tension and also appreciate the ways in which the tension can get out of control if not managed. And I think that's the anxiety we're all experiencing today. It totally makes sense. Awesome. And I think you also talked about a class struggle in your essay touched on some parts of it. So I'm reading Francis Fukuyama's book, Identity, right now, and he says that the political struggle focused on class that we saw in 20th century is sort of replaced by a struggle that focuses on racial, gender, and social identities today, right? So uh, um, back in 20th century, we, we sort of see Marxism, socialism against the West, and now it's all about you know, the LGBTQ community, uh, all, all those sort of issues. Uh, how how would you comment on the phenomenon of, I guess, rising tension of identity politics? And then sort of on a deeper level, do you th some scholars even sort of claim that the current identity struggle shifts people's attention away from the real struggle. And the real struggle should be about socioeconomic class, focusing on big corporations, the actual class struggle. So do you think... Um, you know, one type of debate is more important than the other uh, in today's world. Yeah, I mean, as a as a political theorist, my my basic starting point is that it's absolutely essential to have a non-reductionist account of how class and race reproduce each other. So rather than pitting them against each other and asking these questions, is it one or the other? It it seems it seems obvious that on a level of social theory a kind of sophisticated account of class would incorporate race and a sophisticated account of race would also make room for debates about class. Now, that means that many of the kind of debates that you alluded to are real, but real in terms of political language and what political coalitions to be are there to be formed today. So they're, they're real, but not on the level of social theory. On the level of social theory, 
any account of class or race would have to you know account for for their relationship to each other um that that doesn't mean that we we should just you know stay on the level of social theory but an awareness of the kind of work necessary to build political coalitions i think can be liberated by an awareness of how the two are deeply entwined and require some kind of account of their relationship in order to get off the ground. Do you have a sort of a thesis or prediction on where our current political environment is headed and, and how uh, the identity politics and class struggle would eventually unfold in the next couple of decades? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't have any, <laughs> I don't have any prediction. But I, I do think that focusing on purely on one or the other and losing sight of class or losing sight of race, I think would both be deeply counterproductive pitfalls to be avoided. Gotcha. Awesome. Um, I want to go back to this uh, work that you did in t- 2014 called The Politics of Money. And I guess we uh, talked about some of this um, a, little pre- a little bit before about the, the narrative of credit, how it's kind of a human construct that human beings all came together and said, we're going to have build a credit system, we're going to have currency, uh, we're going to have money. Uh, and, and during the 2008 financial crisis, uh, people sort of, came to the understanding that money is not an objective anchor of value or perfectly neutral means of economic exchange. It's, it's just a construct of our collective imagination. Uh, so I wanted to let you sort of flush out that idea a little bit more about how money is a human construct because a lot of people would say, well, what? Yeah, I think that there are two moments. So the first one is, as you as you rightly emphasize, that monetary crises and financial crises, including the most recent one, but I think one can look back into the history of money and discover the same sense of surprise and kind of epistemological shock in many many previous monetary crises. And that does reveal some kind of fundamental constructivisms, like an appreciation of just how something that one had taken to be natural or rooted in objective value turns out to be deeply embedded in human conventions. And the shock that comes with it is extremely, extremely powerful. But first of all, that shock usually lasts only very briefly. And secondly, more theoretically, I think it's important to accompany it with a sense of how construction itself is rooted nonetheless in real factors, right? To point out that something is conventional or constructed doesn't mean that it's unreal or doesn't mean that it's entirely malleable. Um, And this is the kind of, I think, politics one can see in the wake of the financial crisis, kind of the tension between, on the one hand, a recognition of how much discretion there was, how money is actually something that we can shape, and an immediate frustration of how that response is normally heavily curtailed by existing power relations and social forces. And the frustration that comes from this of realizing that something is actually uh, an institution that we can shape, a political economic institution that should reflect our values and nonetheless seems to exhibit a certain resistance to this. That's, I think, the kind of you know frustrations that we experience now 10 years after the crisis. I think, uh, speaking of frustration, I guess uh, the real issue here is that inflation and financial crises erode people's confidence in the system, in the narrative. Uh, so, but, but my question is, what other option would we have, right? Let, let's say uh, I recognize that there's an issue with the current narrative, the current credit system. Uh, 
but I don't think we have a better idea in terms of you know replacing it, and it, it would require such you know fascinating storytelling to convince seven billion people on Earth to to go to another system, right? Well, it's it's not just this large question of how to move to a different system, which I would want to link to debates about the global monetary order. You know, the kind of paradox, this impasse that we referred to earlier of the Fed now essentially managing global monetary policy. Like, I think this is an impasse that does eventually call for systemic answers that is going to run into more and more paradoxes. But I don't think one has to go immediately this far to acknowledge that there are actually agents with substantial discretionary power in the system. So in particular, central banks have emerged as real sites of political contestation, for, for better or worse, where political decisions are being issued that then feed through precisely this conventional narrative-based monetary system. And so as a result, people have paying much more attention to the kind of political choices made within central banks, the ways in which we as you know, constitutional democracies relate to these extraordinarily powerful political entities that manage our money and the kind of regulatory politics that might initially seem boring and too subtle and too fine-grained, but which has vast repercussions throughout the system. I think there's a, there's a much greater awareness of how much we can actually do by paying attention to the ways in which banks are regulated, the kind of monetary policy that is being issued, and the kind of fundamental questions of who gets credit. What are some of those fundamental questions? Do you have any more specific proposals or examples that you have in mind uh, that could be interesting for us to learn about? I mean, there, there are several, and they pull into different directions. Some have to do with economic inequality. But others, to just pick an example from the European context, is an appreciation of how central banks are today not only there to guarantee economic and financial stability, but also to guarantee fundamental democratic legitimacy. So the ECB, for example, can decide of whether to make room for a democratic election or not by intervening in bond markets or not intervening. So pick the example of Mario Draghi announcing in the run-up to the Italian referendum that he would make sure that a democratic vote can take place, that either before or after the vote, the ECB will act to make sure that market panic will not undermine or erode the democratic legitimacy of the referendum. Now, that's a political choice, and it's one that was offered in this instance, but wasn't offered in other instances. And so we're not just talking about financial stability, we're talking about kind of basic democratic functioning and a recognition of the role that central banks you know, now play in this world. Now, we might, we might feel uncomfortable about you know the enormous power wielded by central banks as a result, but acknowledging that they do wield it is, I think, a first step to kind of get a debate off the ground. Uh, and, and I guess not just the monetary policy that the Fed wields over the world. I mean, just the U.S. has so much power over the global financial system. I mean, for example, uh, SWIFT. I mean, that's the SWIFT code is basically. Uh, this thing that you, whenever you do international bank transactions, for example, if I wire money from the U.S. to my parents in China, I would have to enter a SWIFT code, and that code allows uh, sort of an international organization to track all the tra transactions. And the U.S. basically has can, can oversee all the SWIFT data, um, and that basically controls 
I mean, the, the U.S. can track all the financial transactions across the globe, and that's how they track terrorists and, and control the the capital flow after 9/11, and and that 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 gives U.S. so much power over the global financial markets, right? And and um, do you foresee any way that the U.S. would in any time lose its dominance? I mean, we're already s- saying how it had such huge control and dominance over the current order. Um, is there any way that you see the current order being disrupted? Yeah, SWIFT, Swift is interesting. SWIFT is it's not a payment system itself, but it's it's I sometimes call it the WhatsApp of global finance. So it just exchanges information about what uh, transfer should take place. And then money actually kind of never moves. It's just banks kind of settle their accounts um, after having received the information via SWIFT. And it's a private it's a private organization based in like the lush southern suburbs of Brussels and it's only it's only been since 9/11 that the US has managed to gain access and it was controversial um and provoked struggles over EU privacy law but now the US has access to much swift data if not all of it i mean just to give to give an example um in in popular culture when People now uh, appear as tracking terrorists in most TV shows or movies. It turns out they're actually tracking SWIFT data. That's the kind of the, that's the cutting edge to to track illicit financial flows, and and yeah, it provokes all kinds of resentment on the part of of those whose information is now being read by the U.S. And it provokes real diplomatic impasses in the case of the of the Iran European deal that you know is trying to maintain trade in the face of the U.S. monitoring SWIFT transactions and various kind of innovative ways have been proposed and developed by the European Union in order to continue trading with Iran without relying on SWIFT. But for me, the kind of the underlying question behind like your um, your account of where, you know, global uh, monetary hegemony and financial hegemony might be headed is again to go back to kind of Adam Tooze's counterintuitive point of how he opens crashed, namely that contrary to kind of the initial glee, what the financial crisis produced was a stronger financial grip by the U.S. of the world economy because of the special role of the dollar. So far from undermining the special status of the U.S., what crash shows is that the U.S. comes out of the crisis and of more centrally anchored, more dominant than before. And it's not obvious that the U.S. is going to lose this or lose its unique military hegemony anytime soon. Now, there's some very tentative signs on the monetary side. Uh, if you look at reserve currencies and what's happening in China, that things might be very slowly changing. But for me, the underlying point is one of fundamental uncertainty, right? Like currency realignments rarely proceed linearly. They might not happen for a very long time, and indeed monetary hegemony often outlasts military hegemony. Consider the staying power of the pound sterling or the city of London. But at the same time, when currency realignments do happen, they tend to happen very quickly, and they often even take close observers by surprise. So it's this kind of world of fundamental uncertainty that, if anything, uh, appears on the horizon. Got you. Awesome. Uh, so I want to just talk about your teaching in Princeton for a little bit. You're teaching this class called Race and Credit uh, in America, which uh, talks about racialized wealth inequality. Uh, for example, there's this uh, case that study that shows it would be way harder for a Latino or black family to become 
considered middle class in the United States because having middle class income doesn't actually guarantee you'd have enough middle class wealth uh, to be considered middle class in, in the U.S. So I, I wanted just to hear a little bit more of your, your thoughts on uh, racialized uh, wealth inequality in, in the U.S. I mean, there, there are two ways into the class. One is historical to think through the entwined nature of race and credit in, in America. And the second one is um, by starting with the present and by thinking through the racial wealth gap. And the statistics, for those who don't know them, are just truly haunting. In the report you alluded to, The Road to Zero Wealth, which came out in 2017, not only kind of provides statistics on the racial wealth gap, and not only is the gap growing, but it turns out that Latino and black household incomes are actually falling. So the report, I mean, in a gesture of conjecture that obviously, you know, might be might be proven wrong, but just extrapolating current trends, in particular post-financial crisis with heavily racialized foreclosures, the report projects that black household wealth in the U.S. is going to hit zero by the middle of this century. Uh, another report that was issued by the Boston Fed looked at um, just regional uh, racial wealth disparities in Boston. And I don't know whether you know this, but what, what do you think is the, the, the median black household wealth in Boston today? It's couple, uh, $8. $8? $8. I was going to guess a, a couple thousand or hundreds. Uh, and it's, it's more than 200,000 for white households in the same city. So this, the statistics are absolutely haunting. And the kind of questions um, they bring are not just questions of economic inequality, but for obvious reasons, this is, you know, these are severe challenges for any democracy to manage. To, to have a share of the population that is not only experiencing income inequalities, where, which is where much of the debate has been, but to experience such severe inequalities in wealth, which expresses itself that in many households being unable to even deal with a $400 Emer hit by health care. Yeah, exactly. Most households are unable to deal with this. Um, the disparities in household wealth and the kind of renter power relationships that come with this, the kind of ongoing ghettoization and segregation that comes with this, these are these are all severe challenges that I think you know come to the fore when one spends even... Uh, a little bit of time with these racial wealth statistics. So how do we address the issue of inequality in, in such a wealthy developed country like the U.S.? I, I guess the, the issue of inequality in a country like the U.S. is very different from uh, in a place like India or China. Right? I, I was talking to this uh, Indian economist, uh, Arvind Panagaria. He was the former chief economist of uh, Asian Development Bank. And he was basically saying that, you know, in developing countries, all you need is growth. You know, at least as long as people are getting out of poverty, that's good enough progress. Mm -hmm. um, sure, the inequality will be rising in China and India, but that's sort of inevitable. But the U.S. is a very, very different story. I mean, the U.S. is a rich country. Um, but but we're seeing those racialized issues. What do you think of Well, it? not only is it a wealthy country, but if one breaks down aggregate growth statistics, you can see these kind of disparities shine through. Like what kind, what share of growth goes to which kind of households? How much um, households benefit, for example, from equities rallies? And, you know, obviously, who are the people who are not participating in those kind of gains in wealth? So it, it's, it's exactly a call to break up 
aggregate economic statistics and appreciate the ways in which even kind of decent overall statistics on, let's say, employment or growth might actually paper over substantial and growing wealth and income inequalities. Now, in terms of how to respond to this, it, it, seems, it seems by now that no attempt to let the market do the work, no attempt to just like let growth or increased uh, private lending do the work is sufficient to address the the size of the gap that we've that we've now um, experienced. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Exactly? So it it will need substantial government intervention of one kind or another. Redistributions, well, things like one, that. Well, there, there are lots of proposals out there, and some, some are smarter than others. But it, it, will, it will be a concerted push that is necessary. Any attempt to kind of just improve equality of opportunity or access to higher education is insufficient to actually address the wealth gap. By insufficient, do you mean things like affirmative action or any sort of those social policies are, are basically inefficient, you're saying? Is that they they are necessary, but they will be insufficient on their own. Yes. So I mean, I'm my my main my main authority on which I'm drawing here is the fantastic work done by Mercer Baradran, who's written these two fantastic books on how the other half banks, and then more recently, the color of money, and she has shown very forcefully how various routes that had been attempted in the course of the 20th century, from black banking to you know, somehow credit liberalization are at best insufficient and, in fact, as she shows, are often counterproductive and are immediately hijacked um, by forces that end up increasing the racial wealth gap. And so she comes out very strongly suggesting um, at least a radical tightening of the Community Reinvestment Act um, which she would like to see reformed just in the way in which, for example, capital management was uh, reformed by Dot Frank. So moving it from a kind of box ticking exercise in which banks just see it as, you know, irrelevant paperwork towards an actually severe output based regulatory intervention in which banks are being forced sometimes to do things that they might not want to do otherwise. So her first um, push is to kind of get banks to, you know, pick up the tab and include those that have been explicitly and intentionally excluded from banking services. The number of these households that are unbanked or underbanked are just astonishing. But then this is this is the kind of, you know, step within the existing uh, legal framework. She goes further than this and makes a very strong case that we nearly need to think of kind of substantial redistribution and intervention if we ever want to want to address this gap. Not necessarily fully equalize it, but even just make any major dent or stop the trend would require sincere uh, intervention. Uh, so a lot of people would, I guess, follow this trend of thought, would say uh, we just need bigger governments sort of in the future, in, in the sense that there would be so many regulatory challenges and, and even sort of technological challenges uh, that would need government thinking, centralized thinking. Uh, but there's also people say that you gotta let the markets do its the work, and people who sort of gone through the government bureaucracy would argue the government is just not very good at coming up with good solutions. Uh, sort of how do we how do we take that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a policy scholar. I'm a political theorist and historian of political thought, and so I similarly despair 
when looking at you know actually how to how to think through this in in more concrete terms but i think what polit- the work that political theorists can provide is to just spell out the kind of fundamental political implications of not addressing it like i i'm not i'm not able to tell you how exactly we can create the kind of coalitions that might be able to address these questions but you know i think i i am in a position to tell you that these kind of wealth inequalities are a fundamental challenge for democratic decision making and for a notion of political equality that undergirds our democratic decision making and a failure to address it in whatever form will have dramatic consequences do you have uh, are you more pessimistic or optimistic about our ability to address it as a society i don't know i think i'm you must have some sort of thought in the back of your mind i think i think <laughs> i i think i'm an optimist uh, because i think it could always get worse <laughs> yeah i've heard i've heard that saying like the the pessimist thinks that things can't wor- get worse and and the optimist thinks yeah no i think it's i think there is an enormous potential for political organizing for new innovative political coalitions just there's a lot of there's a lot of energy out there and um if anything can happen it's through that kind of really kind of grassroots work that mobilizes all those people who are not voting right now got you i, I mean the partisanship we're seeing today in the us is just crazy i just, i personally just don't see how this thing would get results so, so that's why i guess so many people rely on this technocratic or or technological vision right of having blockchain coming in and disrupt the system or or having a new uh, political or economic paradigm that comes into and i think that's why people are so excited when uh, works like yours and and professor tuz's sort of come in and, and that provides a very fresh insight so do you see anything that could be a potential disruptor i mean i think the most the most significant intervention for me is to correct the original the kind of the the notion with which you started today actually by associating politics with kind of evil tempering instead to recover a vision of politics as actually something that is emancipating and empowering you know this is this is the kind of self conception of us as political beings that we need to recover if any of this has any chance of succeeding so it's kind of it's work on the level of political language political imagination even before we can start having a conversation about policies it's that kind of fundamental reorientation of how do we relate to others and what is the kind of collective endeavor that we find ourselves in where i think you know political work and political thought is more important than ever uh, so fundamental reorientation th- does that mean i mean going back to what we talked about sort of radically new proposals of how to you know uprooting the society and and changing the way we function do you s- see that as sort of a really necessary thing or do you think uh, liberal democracy will continue to go on well one of the to kind of bring it back to a moment in the conversation earlier one of the effects of the financial crisis has been not only to bring back the kind of awkward tensions uh, of the 1970s between how to reconcile advanced capitalism and democracy but also a kind of reemergence of radically divergent utopian vistas and i think they are they are back now in the political debate both on the left and the right and i think that's a good thing 
I think it's good to have these debates, not just about what to do tomorrow and which kind of, you know, politician to elect, but larger questions about where should we be heading in the long term? Like, what are the kind of societal visions that we can agree on? What are the visions that we consider dystopian? And in particular, in an age of climate change, this kind of stepping back and an appreciation for the larger picture and the kind of political imagination necessary to get political action off the ground is crucial. Uh, what would be your vision for our society going forward? I'm very curious to hear your general worldview. Well, even to question what this reference to our society means, like both the global monetary order and climate change are challenges that, you know, get at the very boundary of national politics, that we will, we will require global cooperation, require new forms of conceiving of our political agency. That, that will not displace national politics, but it will have to reorient our political language and our political imagination. If we have any hope of you know, understanding and responding to climate change and kind of the, the fragility of the global monetary order. Uh, I guess your research is such a, a at such an interesting intersection between what we talked about like political theory, finance, and even questions on sort of civilizational encounters. Uh, do you have any view on how the study of political theory or financial economics will likely evolve in the future? Are we going to see more interdisciplinary interaction? Yeah, one one effect of the financial crisis for me was to make visible again the way in which economic thought and economic policy is in conversation with various neighboring fields. And in my case, like I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between political theory and financial capitalism, but there are also extremely exciting conversations going on uh, concerning economic anthropology, economic sociology, a, a sense of a much broader idea of what the economy is, a much broader idea of what political economy is. And I think this is where we will continue to see very exciting work that challenges even basic notions of what is politics and what is economics, that makes us question disciplinary boundaries, that um, takes the political and political economy more seriously again. Got you. Uh, do you foresee another financial crisis or large-scale political instability happening soon? Uh, in in the U.S. I mean, I'm I'm not a I'm not an economic or political forecaster, and there are, there are people much more qualified than me. Um, but I I do think to come back to this previous point about the preconditions of democratic decision making, they're fragile, and they cannot withstand certain amounts of kind of fundamental economic inequality and unfairness. So. I don't want to kind of translate that into some kind of prognosis, but I think history shows us that the foundations and pillars on which democratic decision-making is built are fragile, and we would do well to appreciate that fragility and, and work hard to both preserve the kind of natural environment and the kind of premises of the natural environment on which we rely, and to appreciate the kind of basic sense of solidarity and cooperation that any kind of society that wants to make decisions collectively also requires.
Got you. Uh, I think I, I want to end the interview by going back to, I guess, the most central topic that we're talking about today is the politicization of uh, money. Um, we talked about your sort of your book forthcoming, The Currency of Politics, The Political Theory of Money from Aristotle to Keynes. Um, I want to ask you, I mean, you've been observing this for a while. What do you think is the most important lesson we can learn uh, when, when talking about the politicization I, I just can't do this word I mean, of, of 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 money it's it's again to bring debates about monetary policy bring debates about seemingly arcane economic indicators or wonky policy discussions back to fundamentals and not to lose sight of questions of political equality of a concept that I'm very interested in is which is reciprocity and and notions of just fundamental um, fairness that hover above these questions and are easily lost if we f just focus on the details or get lost in kind of policy debates about the right uh, level of interest rates. So for me, for me, the crucial lesson would be to bring together debates in political theory, questions about political equality, with these like more fine-grained policy debates, not to lose sides of the fundamentals while we debate the kind of, you know, much more satisfying solutions. Uh, what should our listeners sort of walk away uh, from this interview? Because I personally, I don't know, I, I'm kind of feeling um, a little bit down right now because it seems like, you know, innovations like blockchain or all sorts of things we're talking about are so heavily politicized, right? It, it seems that money and politics can't really separate and whatever we're going to do uh, are always going to have a I guess inherently negative factor behind well no one thing. will come and save us we have to do this ourselves and I think that's not a pessimistic message that's not a message of kind of passivity but instead it's an empowering message it really is up to us no technology will sweep in and solve our problems no, you know, natural wonder will come in and save us. Instead, we have to do the hard work, but we can do this. And that's, I think, why this is a fundamentally optimistic message, because it puts us back into the driver's seat. It makes us appreciate the way in which we've caused the problems, and we can also step up to address them. But human history has sort of taught us that humans are sometimes not really good at um, addressing those fundamental issues, and they often lead to disastrous outcomes. Yeah, and that's why it's important to study that history. So, I mean, in the book, not all of these six moments are kind of rosy moments in which everything worked out. So it's, it's probably as important, maybe even more important, to study failure, to study the ways in which hopes were disappointed and you know, attempted cooperative solutions failed. But it's through that appreciation and through just hard work in the present that, you know, if we have any hope, it's going to, it's going to be there. Awesome. Uh, so the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. I just want to ask you at the end, uh, what do you think is the punchline here for uh, credit, money, politics, political theory? Yeah, I mean, to kind of bring it, bring two strands together that we've been touching on, which is the kind of monetary side and the democratic politics side, I think democratize credit democratize access to credit, not just in terms of lower standards for private credit, but let's harness the kind of wonders of modern central banking in order to provide credit to segments of the population that have been, you know, left out of it for a very long time. Um, that's that's how I would provide the policy punchline. Awesome. Uh, so you, have you ever thought about going into policymaking, uh, you... 
I no, I don't think my temperament would be would be suited to it. I much more prefer reading and writing and a, at a slower pace. Of course. Thank you so much for for this uh, fascinating Thank conversation. Thank you, Tiger. This, this was great. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, so this concludes this interview with Professor Ike. He is uh, uh, the postdoc fellow at the Society of Fellows uh, at Princeton University, and soon he will be joining Georgetown University as an assistant professor of government. Uh, please check out his book, the forthcoming. The Currency of Politics, the Political Theory of Money from Aristotle to Keynes, and, and read his chapter in Regulating Blockchain, Techno, Social, and Legal Challenges, uh, which is also forthcoming. Um, so so a- anything else you would like to no, add to I us? just want to thank you, Tiger, for inviting uh, me. Of course. Thank you so much. And this concludes this uh, episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us uh, on policypunchline.com. Follow Professor Ike on stefaneich.com. Uh, uh, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Uh, thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.